Hi everyone and welcome to episode 9. My guest today is Luke Nosal. Luke is currently the assistant conductor of the Queer Urban Orchestra and in this episode Luke and I talk about pronouns, we talk about the association of gender in conducting, and we also talk about support systems for people that identify as LGBTQ. So please have a listen and enjoy. I'm Luke Nosel. My pronouns are they, them, and she, her. I'm currently based in Brooklyn, New York. I'm 23 years old, and I am an alumni from Penn State University. I, yeah, right? Woo! I graduated. <laughs> I finally graduated last, well, not, well, I guess not last, but two Mays ago, May of 2019. And I graduated with a bachelor degree in music performance of French horn. French horn performance, and I got a graduate certificate in orchestra conducting as well. Wow. I, I, yeah, right? <laughs> I, I, like, I, I always was a French hornist. I, I played French horn since I was in fourth grade, but my main priority and focus has always been in conducting. So even throughout my undergrad, I was, every single year, I was taking lessons with the conducting instructors and focusing as much as I could on conducting at the same time. So that's like your real passion there is conducting. That's awesome. Oh yeah, 100%. And I I grew up originally in a really small town in Eastern Pennsylvania called Bangor. Very small, very, very small. So that's kind of how I had the connection to Penn State University because I was very fortunate to, you know, get a full scholarship to Penn State and really just fell in love with the music program there and there. That's awesome. Why did you pick the French horn? What made you pick horn when you were in fourth grade? That's so funny. <laughs> Literally, I remember they brought down all the high schoolers, like they brought down for like a student assembly. They brought down a high schooler that played each instrument and they both like had 30 seconds to talk about it. And everyone was going for the trumpet and the percussion. And even immediately in fourth grade, I knew I was like, well, I'm not going to be, like, my, my chances at being, you know, successful and being the most successful one are going to be limited if I go for the one that everyone else chooses. <laughs> so I was like, you know what? This one also looks really cool and weird too. And no one's choosing this. So I went for the French horn. It was literally me and one other girl, my friend Courtney. And we stayed with it all throughout middle school, high school, everything. So, you know, it, it really worked out in the long run. That's awesome. It's, it's definitely an interesting choice for a fourth grader, but it was great. It was great. Yeah, no, that's great. I feel like a lot of fourth graders don't start with horns. So I think like it's a really awesome experience that you were able to do that. Yeah, it, it was it was really awesome. My parents were like kind of like, "What the hell?" But it was great. It was great. It <laughs> what is this thing? <laughs> They're like, "What is this?" <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, what were your experiences like in school growing up in like middle school and high school? You know, just in general in school, but mm-hmm. also in your musical ensembles. Yeah, it was I mean, just generally, it was really hard. So, for me, I identify as a queer non-binary femme individual. So, didn't you know, didn't come to terms with any of those words until I was in college, but 
Yeah. You know, the, the seeds were always there. You know, the pieces of the puzzle were always there. It took me a while to put the puzzle together. But it was really, really difficult. You know, I, I moved around quite a bit between that school district and also my father's school district in upstate New York. But I spent a majority of my time at Bangor. And it was just very difficult always having to, you know, present a way that always felt uncomfortable and unnatural just for validation and just to have an access to the resources that were there for everyone else, you know? Yeah. So the hardest times were middle school for me because that's when everyone becomes really conscious of all these, you know, social needs and desires. Elementary school, like everyone's still best friends. Like we all know we're best friends with everybody. And then middle school was really rough. And then high school came around and that was a really special time for me because that's when okay, I could get away from all these general courses where I'm literally in with all of the, you know, the bullies, the mean kids, the people that I just didn't really mess with. So when I got to high school, I was like, oh, I could spend a chunk of my day in the band room. Mm-hmm. Oh, that I'm going to do that, of course, you know. So that immediately, as soon as I got to high school, it was just a huge sigh of relief for me to find a community of people that I finally had something in common with and that was just it was really grounding and it got me through those four years I mean period it got me through those four years yeah so you felt you felt like the band room was kind of a safe place for you totally and I I even it was cool because like I had like an early access to that because of marching band so Mm -hmm. even before the school year started I went into the school year with like 80 friends 80 to 100 friends because, you know, we have band camp the whole month and a half before you bond with people. And then I was kind of like already ahead of the game. Whereas in middle school, like I left middle school with like zero to no friends. Like it was just miserable. So it, it was just so cool. And, you know, I saw the drum major and I said, like, you know, what? I definitely want to do that. That's going to be my goal for these four years. So I also had something visually to work towards. And it was just, it was always, it was great. Because also in the music world, even in high school, there was always something to choose achieve for and work for and aspire for so it really helped me so much out like mentally and emotionally yeah I completely agree I I feel like a lot about being in a music ensemble and growing up and especially in high school because I think we become more aware of those things is that the sense of community and playing in an ensemble really brings people together especially people that you know may not identify the same way as you or mm-hmm. maybe minoritized based upon their gender or, or their sexuality or their race or things like that. So I feel like the fact that the end goal is to create this product, but it's not necessarily about you all the time. It's about the team effort to create, you know, whatever the performance may be, really creates a more accepting and wholesome community in most cases, obviously not everywhere, but I feel like mm-hmm. that's the goal. Oh, 100%. Yeah, it was you know, and even, I mean, looking back at it, like there were, you know, it's, it was still a, a, a like, I'm not even gonna say predominantly, like an entirely white school, you know, it was still mm-hmm. a white school, but, you know, in that scenario, it, I still felt outcasted, even in the band program and music world at times, but it was still so much better than the rest of the school. So I was more than happy to spend all my time down in the music room. It just, it just naturally provides a safer environment for kids. And it, it's not just a safer environment, but an environment for expression. Yeah. So it was just so absolutely crucial to my sanity and my growth because I was able to really learn about myself through music 
in a way that I was not able to do before. Yeah, that's great. I feel like when it comes to having those experiences, I think they're, they're very eye-opening and they're significant for your development, not only as a musician, but as a human. And I feel like people are increasingly becoming more comfortable with identifying as who they authentically are. And I know you and I are about the same age. I'm almost 23. So I feel like when we were younger and growing up in school, even, and we're not even by any means old. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I feel like, cause I went to a predominantly white school as well. And it was, it was in a very predominantly wealthy area and relatively conservative as well. I feel like a lot of my friends who identify as LGBTQ or who are now identifying as non-binary or trans, I feel like they weren't really able to express themselves in that way growing up. I know it took some of my friends a really, really, really long time to come out because that environment can just seem so obtrusive when everyone is the same. And even the people that may not internally feel the same have to outwardly express themselves the same because they don't really see that representation in their student body so they may you know feel uncomfortable with being authentically who they are oh one one thousand percent like even just thinking about it now like i really didn't even begin to start expressing more feminine parts of myself until i was in a band program which sounds weird Mm -hmm. but it's like when, when you're around people that make you feel comfortable and you feel like you have a common bond with, no matter what that common bond is, you're just naturally going to be inclined to just relax, like let down your guards. Like, cause that's what we do. I mean, especially middle school is such a rough time. Whenever I talk to my LGBTQ friends, like, like everyone says middle school is the worst time. Cause we put all, that's when we put all these guards up about, okay, so if I want to be cool, I can't do this. I can't act this way. If I want to be socially acceptable, I have to do all these things. But then as soon as you meet a large group of people that, you know, you feel comfortable with and you have something in common, all those guards slowly begin to let down. And even from like freshman year to my senior year, I became, I became so much more comfortable with, you know, flamboyancy and my feminine side I literally I I got cast as like the lead in our musical like I was like the cat in the hat and looking back at it um (laughs) like that director let me just be so gay on stage like I was just so gay like I wasn't even playing a character like I was just being so flamboyant it's just so outrageous looking back at it that you know they let me do something like that but it would not have happened if it wasn't for that music program you know yeah just such a special thing that kids have yeah and I think in that and a lot, of, a lot of the conversations I've had so far have been, you know, people that are mainly instrumentalists and like their experiences playing in band or orchestra or whatever it may be. But I think a theater program is so beneficial for kids to get them out of their shell and to get them out there because you have to give so much of yourself to be on stage and to do those things in front of an audience that it's really hard to shelter yourself and keep yourself in a little bubble and be able to do that at the same time. Yeah, and it, it's so cool, too, because with theater, it's like, especially, like, younger kids, it's like, you're, you tell yourself, I have to act this way because I'm playing the character. But in reality, for me, it was, like, my subconscious being, like, just be you, just do mm-hmm. your stuff, and you can get away with it because you're on a stage and you're going to have a spotlight on you. Like, it was just, it was just so freaking cool. that I, I think, it, yeah, it's just so cool because you, you feel like you can act a certain way on stage and it because and it's immediately affirmed because it's theater 
and everyone, you know, it's weird, right? Like, even if you look back, like, even like, you know, very bigoted people will go see theater and be like, that was a fabulous play. And then turn their backs and be like, gays shouldn't be allowed to marry. Gays shouldn't have mm-hmm. health care. But yep. when they go into a theater space, they're like, all of this is okay for this next hour and a half. It's beautiful, you know? Mm-hmm. It's so interesting. But it's like, it, it really allows people just to let go of everything and dive into a completely different world. And for me, theater really helped just be more of myself. Yeah. I'm a public school teacher. And so I teach middle school and high school. That's, you know, pretty much my job. I am the only band director for seventh and eighth grade, or is it my school? Oh my I'm goodness. the only band director for all the high schoolers in my school. So oh, well, no way. Yeah. 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 So it's, it's a lot, but it's, it's great. I love my kids a lot. And I try to, you know, do things at the very beginning of the year because I just finished my first year of teaching. So not only was Congrats. I super, yeah, thank you. So not only was I super paranoid about everything that I was doing, but I feel like younger teachers are trying to be more progressive in the way that they approach the classroom and aren't trying to do as many quote unquote traditional classroom things like procedures and routines and those things. And so I really try to amplify student voice and self-expression and those things as well. So like, for example, like the first week of school, I had the kids do a little get to know you thing for me. So they got like a little half sheet of paper so I could get to know them a little more. You know, I made sure I knew how to pronounce their names and things like that. But I also asked them their, for their pronouns. And some kids were like, what, what are even pronouns? Because they didn't know, you know, these are kids yeah. that binary and they're like, uh, okay. And I had explained, well, some people identify not as he or she. And so I had explained to them like how, how you would answer that question. And for, you know, some of my kids are gender fluid or they're not, they don't identify as non-binary. And by looking at them face value, you may not know that. And so I was trying to sort of break that assumption bubble by just asking them. And I was doing it in a way that I thought wasn't too intrusive by making them say it in front of everybody, because I feel like some middle school and high schoolers are still in that gray area where they're kind of just figuring things out and they don't really want to be ostracized for that. So like my question for you is, what do you think teachers can do to just be more approachable in that way and not seem like they're intruding too much on someone's personal life, but that they're going to be able to identify their kids properly and address them in the way that their kids feel comfortable? First of all, I want to applaud you for already what you're doing. The fact that you're even asking your kids their pronouns and teaching them that they have autonomy over their identity is so important, right? Because kids Mm -hmm. are literally conditioned. We are conditioned to know we do not have autonomy over who we are, what we call ourselves, and how we dress, period. Mm -hmm. It all comes from our family, and our family literally dresses us up as to how they want society to see us. Yeah. And then so when we, when you are in a position to teach that children, have, it's like the same thing with consent, right? Like when, like we need to teach kids that like you have autonomy over your body. Like if you don't want to hug someone, you can say no. But like, I feel like exactly. that's a, another conversation too, where like we don't teach kids consent. So they feel like any person that goes up to them, like they have to listen to them or stuff like that. Yeah. It's, it's so important. And even just, and this actually, I had a really special discussion with the, actually the dean of the School of Music at Penn State and a board of professors and faculty before I left about the same, the same discussion, but on the collegiate level, like how can they make their trans students feel more comfortable without necessarily outing them and making them feel ostracized, right? Yeah. 
And the best way is to actually, I think, to do what you're doing right now, which is to poll everyone. You just have to ask everyone in the classroom, what are your preferred pronouns in any way? And like a disclosed form, like you're doing with like writing on a piece of paper, because that way it normalizes it for everybody else. That way, when they see trans people stating their pronouns, that trans person isn't the odd one out. They're not the only person doing this. Yeah. And also you're educating everyone at the same time that people have different pronouns. It's fine, but it's very important to ask and to be respectful. Like you're never, you'll, it's never an invasion of privacy to ask someone what their pronouns are. I think, I think the more we normalize it with non-trans people, the easier it's going to be with trans identifying individuals. Oh, I completely agree. Yeah, for sure. I feel like a lot of people that are, you know, like me, like straight white woman, binary, feel uncomfortable asking those questions because they feel like, oh, it's not my place. I'm not part of that community. I can't ask those questions. I think we've grown a little too concerned about offending people. I think it's important that we pay attention to the language that we're using, of course, but we can't be so tentative that we're now separating our communities into little bubbles. Like we need to reach out to each other and form a connection. And that's why with this podcast, I think it's super important that I'm having conversations with people that identify differently from me. And I'm showing people that, hey, you can have a conversation with this, these people. You can ask this question. You don't have to be afraid. They're a person. You could talk to them. They're human, you know? Right, exactly. And it's like, I don't I, I, I have to be careful. Everyone has to be careful drawing like similarities between race and gender. But I think it's, it's mm-hmm. a similar in the fact that like, I had a discussion with like a business recently, because they wanted to acknowledge Black Lives Matter movement and support them. But everyone in the room felt uncomfortable. I mean, like the board of directors felt uncomfortable addressing Black Lives Matter and talking about Black issues because there wasn't a Black person in the room. Yeah. And that's an issue because it's like, it can't just come from that community. Like, mm-hmm. what Black people can't be the only people to talk about Black issues. And it's the same thing for trans people. Like, trans people can't be the only ones talking about pronoun usage and gender identity or else it's never going to happen. Like, yes. we, it needs to come from other resources, from other communities. And it will also bring us together in the long run, I feel. Mm-hmm. When, when the majority gets on board that's when change happens. Like our country has proven that historically when the majority needs to get on board. And sadly, I think it's, those are straight binary white people. No matter, no matter what the issue is. Yeah. Unfortunately. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And, And that's, that's just what it is. And so now we have to take what it is and we need to move it in the right direction. So that's just facts, right? So totally. And it, it's, it really starts on the younger level. That's so cool. Mm-hmm. Even that you already have kids like identifying as gender queer. That makes my heart so freaking happy. Yay! Um, that's so cool. Cause <laughs> I did like, a thing. I, yes, no, seriously. Yeah. And that also shows that they feel comfortable enough to um, say that to you. So that's also yeah. a reflection of the environment that they're in, which is amazing. Also, even like teachers putting she, her on like, their name tags or their Mm -hmm. pronouns on their name tags and stuff. I think it's also important in emails and stuff like that too. When I was at Penn State University, one of my favorite things that I I ever did while I was there is I, for about two years, I was like an intern for this child LGBTQA group, like this youth group. And it was like elementary school kids and middle school kids that would, some of them would travel from like three and a half hours once a month for a meeting. And it was like 40 kids. And literally, I kid you not, 60% of these kids identified as transgender or non-binary and were so proud and comfortable 
like more comfortable with who they were than I was. Like it was yeah. just mind blowing. Like, and the sooner we incorporate these things at the younger, younger level and teach these children the literacy behind gender identity and sexual identity, the sooner they can feel comfortable with who they are and discover those things. Yeah. And I don't think people realize how recently that is for kids to feel increasingly more comfortable about that because I graduated high school in 2015 and I'm right. pretty sure our gay straight Alliance club was relatively new while I was still in high school. So this is not same. Yeah. Yeah. So it's like not a new, kids. Yeah. yeah, not an old issue. It's, it's, it's been recently developed that kids are feeling more confident. So I think there's, there's still a lot of work to be done with that. There's a lot of work to make kids feel more comfortable. There's a lot of work to teach kids that, people are going to be different from you and you're going to have to be okay with that because you have no influence over what somebody else does and how they identify themselves. You have no power over them. You know? Yeah. Well, one thing I always told my kids was that it's called an identity, not a identity. Like you get to determine, like I get to determine my identity and that's the only person that has say over it. Like no one else it's just you. And that's why it's called an identity. That's a yeah. good way to put that. That's a really good way. I'm going to have to keep that in my, in the back of my brain now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's just like, it, it, it's just so important. Cause I don't know. It's just like, even for me as a trans person, like I I'm like right now in my life as a 23 year old, one of the biggest things I'm struggling with personally is like my gender presentation. Right. Cause if I, I feel like if I had the language to navigate gender identity at an earlier age like even in high school even in high school or middle school then I would be more comfortable I'd probably be presenting myself a much different way but the fact of the matter is I never heard the word transgender until I was a freshman in college and I'm not that's not an exaggeration I I never heard that word before yeah I didn't hear it until I was in college either right isn't that crazy and so it's like even that age gap is huge I didn't even know, this is like, this is crazy. And so many people are going to laugh at me about this. I didn't even know that gay people existed until I was in seventh grade health class. Oh, I believe that. I was 12 years old. And me and my youngest brother are six years apart. And my brother knew who gay people were when he was in elementary school. Like he was, he was little, like he knew. And so like, and we're only six years (sighs) apart. So that's the difference. Like things have been changing that quickly and it's great. But yeah, I was 12 years old. In that is class. wild. Isn't that crazy? Yeah. And like, even for me, like, that's so, I believe that. But like, that's how different the culture was. Like, it wasn't in media. Mm-hmm. Like, there was really no visibility anywhere. And I remember I met a trans person, incredible trans man. I owned so much at Penn State. And I did like one, it was like my English 15, one of my English 15 papers on transgender people and I remember I asked him to edit my paper because I just used every term improperly and I had no idea what the hell I was talking about because it was so new to me mm-hmm. and looking back like that was only like five six years ago it's yeah. just if I had if I was allowed more time to think about my identity with the literacy I need then I would I'd probably be a much different person mentally physic- physically and emotionally yeah, no, I, I, I agree with that. And I think that comes with how the culture is shifting a little bit, but it's also in some ways still way far behind what we need it to be. And I think that comes from not only the media, but I think it also comes from people see 
non-binary affection as adult Mm -hmm. or anything on that topic is seen as adult. Oh, kids can't see that. Kids can't hear about that. That's inappropriate for children. Right. Because it's like this whole thing of like child's, if you talk about a child's sexuality, then people want to lump that under pedophilia. And like, I, I remember I took a course, a gender identity in college and my, the teacher was like, you will find that scientifically there are literal to no studies on child sexuality because there's so much stigma around those two words. No one wants to fund it. Like no one mm-hmm. wants to be known for funding a child sexuality study, but it's so important that it's like, it's a like, you it, sexuality and gender identity need to be at least the the terms and the literacy need to be given to children they have those tools at the beginning of their journey yeah and i i think that parents should be teaching their children that's not an inappropriate thing you know you say to young boys oh that's going to be a ladies man right like yeah, you, you like, know how much you know how much heterosexuality was shoved down my throat my entire childhood exactly. Yeah. Oh my goodness. <laughs> but yeah, we, we, we use phrases like that. Or when we're talking about girls, we're like, oh, like, we're going to have to keep a lot of boyfriends away from her and things like that. So like, so, you know, people may think that examining those issues is considered inappropriate, but at the same time, we're making those things appropriate, but only in a certain fashion. And it has to be this way. And we're not as open with showing kids that, hey, like, you can like who you want to like. And that's Mm -hmm. not an appropriate thing to do. Kids see people kissing and hugging and things all the time. But if it's not in the way that society wants people to show affection, then that's considered inappropriate for kids to see. And I think that whole social norm needs to start changing. And I think younger kids would be more comfortable with being who they are in middle school or high school and those things. And it wouldn't set things so far into the future. Totally. Trans people and queer people are queer and trans their entire life. So mm-hmm. therefore we need to talk about these issues as soon as they can speak. It's like, we don't like morph into like, we don't molt like a butterfly, like into <laughs> a trans person or a gay person at yeah. like, a certain age. Like you are that person. I remember when I was four years old, a little, or five years old, my mom would have me go feed the chickens at her pastor's house. And the son would help me feed the chickens and I would blush and hide behind my mom's legs because the kid was so handsome. And I still remember his face. Yeah, but like, you had a crush on him that, back then. Yeah. Right, right. Yeah, so 100% in any level of education, I think it's important if you're going to, you know, instruct kids at least give them the literacy to know that they have domain over their identity yeah exactly let's transition a little bit let's focus a little more on you but um (laughs) (laughs) so you were talking about how you know you're studying conducting and you're a horn player and all these things and so you pursued music as a profession, how has the way you present yourself and how you identify your gender, how has that affected your experiences professionally? Have they been mainly positive, mainly negative, kind of a grab bag, depending on the situation? How has that been for you as a, you know, a professional adult and musician? Debilitating. Yeah. <laughs> like, quite frankly, debilitating. And not even in the professional world. I'm talking academia. So Mm -hmm. really, really difficult. So I took 
like I said, I originally did a four-year degree. That was my original plan. My senior year, like I had done, I mean, my, my freshman year, I did a conducting workshop down in Georgia. I did conducting workshops everywhere, master classes. I conducted an, I conducted an opera um, for the Cincinnati Conservatory Summer Opera Program. I was one of the conductors, everything. I had was, I was networking with so many important professors I wanted to go to school and study under for. I had planned everything out to a T. And my senior year came, I applied for like, I think it was nine graduate programs, master's degree programs for orchestra conducting. And five of them, I was able to identify as trans and or non-binary because some just give you, some are like man, woman, trans, like what? Or some are like man, woman, uh, other, I do what's other, and then you can type non-binary. And what's, what's important to note about this is that people, the only people that receive these applications for conducting are the head of the program. Like mm-hmm. the head of the program decides who they accept. Every single application that I submitted where I was able to identify as trans, I got rejected. But every single application that I was forced to identify as a cisgender man, I made it to the final round of auditions. So wow! at all of these places that I made it to the final round of the auditions, some this one man I knew for years, worked with him before, and, you know, I... Had I at this point, I've only been really coming to terms with my identity for like three-ish years. So I w- I'm I'm still presenting as a what some people would say as a cis man, like male passing, I guess. And I I went to all these auditions, and I just closed to each of the faculty members at each institution, like each head of the program, that I used they them pronouns. Mm-hmm. And I had this discussion with my father, who was like, "I don't think you should do this." Um, because I wanted to get an education. But for me, it's like, I cannot go to a graduate program where I will be forced to basically study under one person nonstop for two years. Like, that's what it is. As a conductor, you study, you have one teacher for two years, mostly. And I'm not going to do that and be misgendered and feel like I have to act, talk, dress, and look constantly a certain way to appease them. Mm -hmm. So I, every single place, I, at some point in the audition process, I pulled them aside and said, hey, just let you know my pronouns are they, them. I got denied from every single institution. So the next year came around, I was like, you know what? I did another opera program. I like did something in Cape Cod. I was like, you know what? I have a lot more under my belt. This time I'm going to have a graduate certificate under my belt. I got this. It's going to be great. The same exact thing happened. I applied this time to 11 different graduate schools. The six schools that I was forced to identify as a man, I made it to each of the final rounds. And for all the schools where I was able to identify as a non-binary trans person, I didn't even get a call. I, there's this one person and he's the head of orchestra conducting at the University of Houston. Mm-hmm. Oh, Franz Krager. I had been I had been communicating with him over three years because he his graduate program is you know limited and he he knew I was going to be available 2018 and 2019 but he wasn't going to have an opening to 2019 and I had already sent videos and he said the last communication we had before I sent my audition info in was he messaged me and said I look forward to your live audition which was like oh great so he's already appeased with me. I'm just going to submit this and I'll be invited and I'll see him at the live audition. So I was able to identify as trans on the application and Mm -hmm. I never heard anything back. I never even got a denial. I didn't get anything. I didn't get a letter from him. Absolutely no point of contact after I submitted my application, which was devastating to say the least. And then I 
I had same, I had several auditions in the spring. Every single audition, Peabody Conservatory, everything, like I was able, I made it to the final round. And even with the head of the program at Peabody, Marin, Marin Alsop, I was mm-hmm. really, really, I had a lot of hope there because she is a lesbian identifying woman. And I had a conversation with her after the audition. It went so well. Literally, I, it just went absolutely so well. I prepared my butt off for it, considering what happened to me the previous year. And I pulled her aside and I had a conversation with her about, you know, I use they, them pronouns. And, you know, I, I could see in her eyes that something changed. Like she, like she checked out, like that happened with every person I talked about at these, like every person I told my pronouns to, I could see something behind their eyes, like change. Like they mm-hmm. immediately looked at me differently and I didn't get it. I did not get it at all. I didn't get into any of the program. And when I asked for feedback as to why this was both years, I only heard back from probably 20% of the people. And the only feedback I ever got was, um, I just think you need more experience nothing ever about technique, any, you know, actual insightful person, you know, just insight, any actual yeah, accurate like no insight, feedback. specific insight, yeah. no feedback. It was just like, oh, you need experience, which also tells me, oh, you need more experience in this cis industry. You need to go out there for yourself, conform to what we want you to look like, then come back here and have an audition and we'll let you into our program. So it was at that point where I went back to my conducting professor, Rado Edelstein at Penn State University. And I just, I was just devastated. And I had one of the best conversations of my life with that man. And he said, listen, this, these systems, these academic systems and these academic institutions obviously have not been made for your body. Like they have not been made for trans people and they Mm -hmm. were never made by trans people. They're made specifically for these cisgender bodies. I think the most productive thing you can do with what you have is move to a city that will most likely give you far more opportunity than these institutions. And he told me, he said, I really hope one day that you can conduct an orchestra full of queer and trans people because that's what you really deserve. And that meant the world to me. And I I moved to New York City. And that August, I became the assistant director of the Queer Urban Orchestra. (laughs) Right? Yeah. It just, it seems so surreal. But it was definitely, I'm I'm so happy to have someone like him. And he is a straight cisgender man from Argentina. And he's one of the best allies I've had in my entire life. So I'm really grateful for a man like him. But the whole academic process has just really devastated me and it just shows me that they're made for certain types of bodies and that goes beyond cisgender transgender that goes to white bodies straight cis bodies and if you do not have that body then you just immediately lose accessibility so it was just it was very very difficult yeah i think there's there's a lot pieces to unravel in your experience Mm -hmm. like a my first thought was with the questionnaire, how easy would it be just to make more categories? Right. Like, like 100%. I've done surveys before with my own students for graduate research. And I just, I just created more categories. And yeah, it may seem overwhelming when there's eight categories, but a kid can actually like identify who they are. And so I think it's, yeah. it's really debilitating. I mean, I, I can't speak from personal experience, but it has to be 
kind of a debilitating experience to just have to keep marking other and then filling in who you are when yeah yeah it's like you're literally othering us like you exactly. like when i look yeah. at a paper and you identify me as other like it's literally othering because the word is other <laughs> yeah like yeah. what it's just like it is just you are acknowledging that we are not at the we are not invited to the party yeah so there's that and then the whole audition experience is I want to say mind-blowing, but at the same time, I'm also not surprised, which is, like, a terrible feeling to have. But I think a lot of people just hearing your experience can gain a lot from that, especially people that are in education and those things. And I think we try to act like music and classical music is being so progressive and all these things, but there's all these systems in place that are preventing that from happening, especially in conducting. Oh, female people. Yeah, female people, women, just women in general, have had to fight for so long just to even be respected on the podium, and we're still not, mm -hmm. let alone people that are non-binary or trans. Oh, 1,000%. Like, when you look at a job field where even, like, women and non-white people still to this day make up a fraction of like mm -hmm. maybe like less than five percent of the people holding these jobs yes it's it just it doesn't make any sense and obviously it's reflective of the mindsets of the people who are running these institutions like it is a hundred percent political and it's a hundred percent about the people appeasing the people that finance these institutions so yes. it, yeah. it's just it's so systematic and ingrained it's like i thought i was going to be able to go in beat the system with how good I am at a conductor. And it, at the end of the day, I could have been Gustavo Dudamel, but they would never let me in the room, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah, and in the way that has been so debilitating, a lot of my research this past year in graduate school has been on gender inequity. And Beautiful. specifically more in, in the band realm, because that's my profession and that's my, mainly my experience. I played in orchestras before, but growing up I was you know, mainly in band and those things. But I, I have done some research, especially at the university level and the secondary level in band. And only 5% of university band directors are women. And so oh my God. that yeah. 5% and then you're taking women of color, it goes even smaller. And then I don't know of, I mean, you may know of, but I don't know of a single conductor of a major symphony orchestra that identifies as non-binary or trans literally zero like literally yeah. I, mean, the zero. I can't even think of anybody there there are only eight black female band directors at the university level eight yeah only i 100 yeah. believe it yeah only Wait, um, 15 percent of uh, high school band directors are women it's just it's mind-blowing and it's like if it's not if people cannot see the physical their physical image represented at the highest level of the craft mm -hmm. then you are inherently telling those people that they will never make it you're not respected you're not valued and and people try to use the argument well they're not trying out for these jobs they're not auditioning they're not trying i'm like uh do you know how many people i know that try over and over and over again and get denied oh 100 percent 100%. It's just, and then when someone finally succeeds, it's literally just about who they are. And it's like, oh, no, well, they just needed someone. It's like, the fact that you even say that is reflective of how few people there are in the system yeah. with that identity. And people try to, in conducting, they try to use excuses 
to deny people of these minoritized groups, whether it be race, gender, sexuality, whatnot, they try to use these technical excuses. They try to say, oh, well, you're not conducting aggressive or masculine enough. Or you're conducting too feminine. Your gestures are blah, blah, blah. And you may be the most masculine, aggressive conductor, but you don't identify as male. So they're going to use the excuse that, oh, your gestures are too feminine. Sorry. It's okay. all coded yeah. language to just attack people's identity and, gen- yes. and like perception of their gender. It's just, it's, it's all coded. Like it's just all just ways to just, it's just, it's so messed up. And the sad thing is it shouldn't matter because it's music and music is an auditory experience for the most part. Like, yeah, you watch an orchestra, but you're more so listening. It's, it's an auditory experience, especially when we're dealing with instrumental ensembles, because your ability, like who you are should not affect how you play. It's an object that you're using your skill to play that has nothing to do with your race or your gender or your sexuality. It's nothing to do with that. It is, it's an auditory experience. It's a sound that you're producing. And that's the weirdest thing to me is people try to make these connections and these excuses when these two things are entirely different. It should not matter. Oh, totally. And it's like, it's, that's the power of like a conductor. Because when you have someone as a conductor, like that person is the visual representation of that music. Mm-hmm. So it is, it could be such a powerful tool to show someone the conductor of this ensemble is a proud trans person. And that tells everyone that trans, that sends such a powerful message to people. Yeah. That is such a position of power. But when you hold that position for a specific type of body and you look around and you see that's the only body in this position then you show people that yeah you can be part of the music making but you're never going to be the person in front you're never going to be the person in charge you're never going to be there and people with your body will never be there and with conducting it's such a difficult profession because basically people don't retire they just go until they can anymore so these people that get these positions they have them for a huge chunk of their life so we're giving them to the same people. Like even the majority of the conductors are still in work today. Like they've had these jobs for probably more than 20 years. So oh, yeah. it's just so disheartening to see people get appointed today, nowadays that are still in the same bodies when it's difficult. It's like, it's a whole systematic, you know, reformation that we need. And unless it ha- happens at the highest level, it's never going to happen beneath it. I completely agree. And I, I also, I almost view this sort of as a cycle, kind of like what came first, the chicken or the egg, because what we do in K-12 education can systematically affect the professional world, but the professional world also has a huge influence on what kids see and what they hear in K-12 education. So it's like, where do we stop the cycle and where do we repair it? because it's like this battle all the time. And I think it has to come from both fronts. It has to be coordinated. And that's kind of the battle we're getting right now because professionals have so much influence on kids and what they're seeing and their teachers have so much influence on them. It all needs to be sort of this coordinated thing that needs to happen. One of my biggest hurdles was when, you know, pursuing education as a conductor and pursuing upper education, like master degrees, um, for conducting because I never saw a trans person with that platform 
So I'm literally chasing after something that doesn't exist. Like it yeah. literally does not exist. You know, it's just, it, it's like, it, that's why it's so important. Like we need a trans person to be in that platform because people are, young trans people are looking around early on when they're deciding what they want to do. And they're like, oh yeah, this is not for me. It, it just isn't. Like it literally isn't for me. It, it's not for my body. And I'm constantly, mm -hmm. every day I try to be a conductor, I'm fighting against something that literally does not exist. Yeah, representation is one of the most important things that can happen in our field. And that's what keeps kids going. But it also perpetuates the very straight, cisgendered, whitewashed community that the music field has ended up being. The kids that are of majority in any way possible are the kids that are continuously motivated and have a lot of heroes and idols and people to look up to. And then the people that are minoritized in the community are the people that often struggle to get to that spot. So I think it's more about, in, from an education point, encouraging those kids and trying to seek people out that they can look up to. And I know for me, being a female trumpet player, that was often really hard growing up, was finding people to look up to. I only had one female band director my entire time growing up. And so if I didn't have her, I may have not thought about being a band director at all because I would have been like, hey, that's not for me. I don't want to draw too many parallels between myself and, you know, someone who is non-binary. No, no, but that's, that's, a, that's, a, that's a great point. Yeah, I'm just trying to like bring the point that representation is so important and it's so it needs to be valued so much more and people need to understand that. And the problem is, like I said before, things don't happen until the majority gets on board with it. So I'm hoping that people are listening to this and going, hey, what can I do with my privilege in this situation to make it better for people who don't have that privilege? Right. And unless those people that are already invited to the party and have that privilege stick out for the people on the outside, it's mm -hmm. never going to happen. Like you cannot, like we cannot leave the fight up to the people that are being fought against. Like it needs to come from the people with the privilege to be able to look around the room with like bodied people and to say, we need to end this. This needs to stop. And it takes a lot of courage and it takes a lot of bravery, but it's just, it is just so necessary or else it's going to continue to be perpetuated, which is also like a really important spot, you know, young educators have. I mean, people who educate young people, it's like you, we get a chance to empower kids and say, you can do these things, you can do anything you want. But when they grow older and they look around and they see the room is empty when it comes to their bodies and their likeness, it's just, it, it's hopeless. It's absolutely hopeless. And that's why I feel like it's so important that you keep doing what you're doing. You keep fighting the yeah. good fight because you're going to be that for kids. Thank you. I really, I really hope so. And that's why that is literally why I keep doing this. Like I, I'm going to be reaching out to like my high school soon. And I, I want to see if I can come in, like give a talk to like the kids. Cause like, I oh, really, that would be so great. You should totally do that. I really do. I really, really want to. I just really, really want to go back to my high school. Cause it's like, it is just literally bumble crap. I just really want to go and have a have a talk with them and, you know, try to inspire these kids. Like, listen, yeah. you can get out of this town and move to New York City and be a conductor if you want to and well, be trans. Yeah, I mean, I, I listened to, I was at a gender equity conference. It was the first collegiate gender equity conference at Eastman this year that has ever happened at a music school before, which I thought was 
a little atrocious the fact that it had to be 2020 before something like this happened but our our yeah i know right and our keynote speaker is elizabeth rowe and she was the yeah she was a flute player in the boston symphony that fought for equal pay for position because she found out that her oboe counterpart was making like tens of thousand dollars more than she was and the only parallel she found was that because she was a woman And she was talking about, and she said something that struck me so much. She said, the personal is political. And what she meant by that was that if you are a minoritized person in this field, your identity and who you are and how you carry yourself and you just being there becomes political. And so it's so important for you to keep going and keep fighting the good fight and keep being the person that you are and be authentically yourself because you are going to have a ripple effect on the future. I absolutely love that. That is, that is ingenious. Yeah, it just stuck with me and I was like, oh my gosh, this is brilliant. I immediately like typed it down on my phone. Probably looked like I was texting while she was talking and I was like, <laughs> I need to keep this in my brain. This needs to become cemented because it's so true. It's so true. And, and that's unfortunately how it is because we try to separate politics from our personal life but it's, it's not, not when you are a minoritized population. You Never. being there is political. And so you need to keep fighting the good fight and do that for the future. Yeah, that's, and that's literally my goal. I hope to break a glass ceiling or two someday. That's mainly the thing that keeps me going, like just kind of like this rage against the fact that this is still happening in 2020. And it's just, what also frustrates me, it's like, it's just so crazy because People think about music and they think we are the leaders of a progressive world. And like Mm -hmm. we are the most progressive and accepting institution, you know, our like job field out there. And it's really kind of the opposite. Like, yeah, I think popular music has become more progressive. And that's why people say that because Uh, popular music is completely different from the classical music tradition. I say that in quotations because I think it's stupid, but Mm-hmm. They look at popular music and they, they look like people like Sam Smith, who's recently come out identifying as they, them, and people like that. And they say, oh, music has become more progressive. There's this whole section of music in the classical BS tradition that is not that at all whatsoever. It's the opposite. So people need yeah. to realize that. A hundred percent. A hundred percent believe that if this art form continues to shut out Black people, non-cis people, and women like it's just it's going to die because we every people are jumping ship because Mm -hmm. they don't see their bodies being presented in this art form at the highest level and i literally mean the highest level you look at the metropolitan opera house i wish i had specific statistic but they did in their performances of aida from 2007 and 2017 Mm-hmm. There's there were sixty three roles that were for two black characters. So the, like the uh, two or three black characters, but those roles were repeated over sixty three times in different productions. And out of those specific sixty three roles that were for black people, only seven of them were actually performed by black people. Which means they fifty something times they had non black people playing these roles for black people. And wow. it's like at the at the high, this is the highest level of the art form of opera. And you only see Black people at the Met when it's Porgy and Bess. So it's like, even for Black people looking at off, they don't even see themselves welcome. Like, they can't, Black people can't even play Black roles. So are they ever going to play roles that aren't specifically Black? It's like, and it's the same thing for gender. The whole argument, especially for trans women, it's, oh, trans women should only play trans roles. 
you still see even in cinema like i okay i strongly encourage everyone listening to this to watch disclosure on netflix it highlights how media has covered trans bodies throughout history and there are so many parallels in the music world about this as well but it's like trans people can't even play trans roles so the fact that there are probably one percent of roles that there are for trans people and they can't even perform that one percent it's just like it doesn't make any sense so like Trans people need to perform roles that aren't meant for trans people as well, like literally just roles in general, and the same for Black people. And we see that, and it's just so upsetting that we see that problem highlighted in the classical world today. I am so ashamed of the Met. I went to the Metropolitan Opera. The first time I went to the Metropolitan Opera House, when you go in their lobby and you go to the bathroom on the lower floor, there's literally a shrine of Blackface. Like, it's like our history of Blackface at the Met. And they don't say it's bad. Like, I think it's their way of acknowledging that it's wrong. But there are just so many problems with these institutions that we glorify and look up to with race and gender. But unless people from inside the room and inside the crafts are able to hold these institutions accountable, it's never going to change. Yeah, I completely agree with what you're saying. So I got a little off topic, but it's, it's all the same. It's all the same. No, it's great. I think that's a great thing to end on is if unless you're in the party and you're the one who's mm-hmm. invited and you're in the majority and you're the one who has these doors just open for them because that's the way it is. And, you know, you can't blame yourself for being who you are. That's how you were born. But you can use what you have and the resources that you have to help others that don't. And I think that's what the focus needs to be. You are invited to the party. You need to unlock the door and open it for other people. You're going to be on the outside the entire time. Exactly. (laughs) Well, Luke, I want to thank you so much for talking with us today because I think you had some really insightful things to say. And I think this is promoting the idea of people can communicate and talk about gender and sexuality and those things and not feel like, there's all this discomfort and things that are associated with. Yeah, and thank you so much for inviting me and giving me a platform in this manner. I have so much faith for all the kids that you're gonna be teaching. And oh, the, thank you. The really, yeah, and the really special part about being a band teacher and a music teacher is that you have access to almost every kid in that building at some point, especially mm-hmm. on like lower levels of like, uh, like middle school and elementary school. It's like, and your impact will literally not go unnoticed. You will impact hundreds if not thousands of kids and i just thank you so much for your work and it's giving me a lot of hope for the future and there is so much hope out there we just have to keep fighting and we need stronger allyship now more than ever so thank you so much for giving me a platform today and allowing me to speak about my past issues i guess just everything i just i really really sincerely appreciate it yeah thank you i appreciate you (laughs) (laughs) thank you i appreciate it Thank you, Luke. Hi, everyone. If you enjoyed this episode, please make sure you are visiting your website and following us on Instagram and on Twitter. This podcast is currently available on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. If you are not listening to it on those platforms, you can do so. It is still currently also on SoundCloud, so if you're doing that, great. Please make sure you are liking, commenting, and sharing. We are trying to expand to a larger and larger audience as we go, so if you enjoyed this episode or any other episode so far, please make sure you are sharing them with your friends. Thanks.